Senators on Capitol Hill are attending the last of a series of closed-door briefings on artificial intelligence. They acknowledge developing regulations for AI should be a priority. We have no choice but to acknowledge that AI's changes are coming. We ignore them at our own peril. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. A tornado that tore through a Pfizer factory in North Carolina should exacerbate drug shortages. Records obtained by NPR show the plant made dozens of products, including painkillers and anesthetics. And Rudy Giuliani is no longer challenging the claim that he lied about election workers in Georgia. Now there's a renewed focus on his role in election interference. It's 401 News Headlines and the forecast and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A federal judge in Delaware is deferring a decision on whether to accept or reject President Biden's son Hunter's deal with the government to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and enter a diversion program for felony firearms charge. From member station WHYY, Chris Barish reports. U.S. District Judge Mary Ellen Norica had a rash of questions for prosecutors and lawyers for President Biden's son. The judge questioned several key aspects of the plea deal. Norica also determined that the parties disagreed over the scope of possible future charges in the ongoing five-year probe into Biden's business dealings. She also questioned why the parties decided that she would rule on whether Biden had committed any violations of the deal in the gun case. He's charged with illegal possession of a firearm by someone addicted to drugs. Norica ordered both sides to file briefs on those issues. Biden had been prepared to plead guilty to willful failure to pay taxes from 2017 and 2018, but ultimately pleaded not guilty. For NPR News, I'm Chris Barish. Roughly a month after hitting pause, the Fed's raising interest rates again. At the conclusion of a two-day meeting, the central bank announced a rate increase of a quarter percentage point in its campaign to further slow inflation. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says there's still a long way to go in an economy that's still growing too quickly for inflation to drop back to the Fed's 2 percent target. Wall Street is also weighing the risks of a recession under the Fed's ongoing interest rate hikes. Music fans all over the world are mourning today amid reports that Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor has died. She was 56 years old. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports her extraordinary voice, made famous by her haunting cover of a song by Prince, rose up from a deep well of pain. Her song Nothing Compares to You and the music video with its close-up shots of Sinead O'Connor's shaved head was a huge hit in the early 90s. Sinead O'Connor was born in Dublin. She told NPR in 2014 that she was abused as a child by her mother and that gave her fuel for her early work. So much of child abuse is about being voiceless, that it's a wonderfully healing thing to be able to just make sounds, to voice all those things. And she was a voice for abused children. She famously tore a picture of Pope John Paul II on Saturday Night Live in 1992, and she continued being outspoken on a number of issues throughout her career. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. Oscar-winning actor Kevin Spacey's been cleared of all sexual assault charges in Britain. The 64-year-old was accused by four men of sex crimes dating back 20 years. Spacey repeatedly denied wrongdoing. The Dow is up 82 points. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Things are heating up in the Boston area and much of the rest of the state. Temperatures have been in the upper 80s today, and WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says they're expected to get even hotter. Heat advisories go into effect tomorrow and last through Friday with highs in the mid-90s and intense humidity. The heat index value will hover right around 100 degrees both afternoons. Tomorrow, we'll also need to keep an eye to the sky. Scattered thunderstorms are expected during the afternoon and evening especially. Some could become severe with damaging wind gusts and localized flooding the primary threats. No storms Friday, but another round is expected Saturday with highs around 90 before relief arrives on Sunday. will be much less humid and not nearly is hot with a high near 80. Boston and several other communities have declared heat emergencies starting tomorrow and will open cooling centers to the public. The North End restaurant owner accused of shooting a man at a man on Hanover Street two weeks ago will remain in custody. A judge today found Patrick Mendoza to be dangerous and ordered him held for 120 days. Mendoza is accused of shooting at a man with whom he'd had a long-standing feud. Nobody was hurt. The Boston Licensing Board has suspended the license of his restaurant, Monica's Trattoria, to serve food and alcohol until management is transferred away from Mendoza. Former Democratic political consultant Sharon Durkin is set to join the Boston City Council. WBR's Walter Wuthman has more on the winner of yesterday's special election. Durkin grew up in rural northern Georgia, but is a veteran of Massachusetts political campaigns. Initial tallies show she won 70% of the special election vote in District 8, which covers Beacon Hill, Back Bay, and Fenway. Durkin says her main priorities are fighting for affordable housing, climate policies, and neighborhood services for her constituents. They're not interested in infighting. They're interested in a counselor that gets stuff done for them and is responsive. And so that's what I'm dedicated to be. Durkin replaces former councilor Kenzie Bach, who left to run the Boston Housing Authority. Durkin plans to run for a full term in the general election this November. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Some state Senate staffers are getting a raise. Senate President Karen Spilka announced today that Senate employees who began working before May 1st will get a 7.5% bump in pay. State Senate staffers have been trying to unionize for more than a year, an effort Spilka has not supported. 89 degrees now, pretty nice out there still, breezy, hazy. Should be partly cloudy and dry overnight tonight, down around 70. Then for tomorrow, some sunshine, chance of some random showers in the afternoon. Could have more stormy summer weather for part of the day on Saturday, then calming and cooling on Sunday. Temperatures on Sunday about the upper 70s. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple companies side by side, including options that don't require a medical exam. Learn more at policygenius.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Extreme heat killed more people in the U.S. last year than hurricanes, floods, lightning, or tornadoes. It's by far the deadliest weather-related disaster in this country. Yet, the human impact is harder to see. No toppled trees or flooded homes. And the federal government treats heat waves differently than other types of disasters. Well, if you think about it, heat has no owner. There's no heat agency. It's everybody and nobody's problem. And I think that needs to change. That is Kathy Boffman McLeod talking to All Things Considered back in 2021. She's a director of the Arsht Rock Resilience Center, a nonprofit focused on climate adaptation. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. 
So, Kathy, just yesterday on the show, I spoke with the mayor of Phoenix, and she was telling me that she and other officials in the state of Arizona are working to get heat designated as an eligible federal disaster. So I want to ask you, how much has changed since we talked to you two years ago in how the federal government responds to these events? Well, lots of good things and also an acceleration of the effects of heat that exceeds our own perception of how hot it is. Um, NOAA has just put out a $5 million grant opportunity and FEMA has the you know, building resilient infrastructure uh, communities. That is a $2.3 billion offering for local and state governments, um, big multi-agency task force across the the federal government. Um, but at the same time, we see deaths and illness and the increase of the risk and the impact is happening so quickly, our own perception of it can't keep up. And so there's some good news and some bad news. I understand that you are on FEMA's National Advisory Council. What can you tell us about how FEMA is moving to respond to extreme heat, much as we see the agency respond to other disasters? I can't really respond um, as a member of the National Advisory Council, and so um, I won't make any comments on that. But I will say that the understanding of the need to get in front of these disasters for communities, places like Miami-Dade County, where they are implementing worker protection rules at the local level, uh, trying to pass protections for people who are least responsible for the heat but the most susceptible to it, that has become uh, top of the agenda of local and state leaders across the country. Heat deaths are really hard to count because only some of those have heat illness specified on a death certificate. So in your view, do we have an accurate picture today of how deadly these heat waves really are? We do not absolutely do not. And the underlying conditions that lots of Americans and people around the world have are exacerbated by heat. And so when you go into the hospital, there is not a box to check on the intake that says, is this a heat-related injury? And if that's happening, that's great, but it is uh, few and far between. It sounds like you're saying that some of the solutions here could be pretty easy, but I'm curious what the effect would be. What would more accurate counting of health issues or deaths that occur due to heat do when it comes to improving the government response? I think it would create more urgency to have the sense, you know, in the summer of 2021, 1,200 people died in two days uh, across the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. I mean, that's a mass casualty event. And again, you fly over and there's nothing to see, you know, from one day, you know, to the third day. And we are still having the same conversation. So if we had those huge numbers that showed us how many people really are getting sick, I, we, I think we'd have the private sector getting involved, understanding how much it was costing them, the healthcare companies, governments enacting lots of evidence-based interventions that we know work and save money. And so some very strong cost-saving and health protection measures could come as a result of having real data that tells us how many people are dying from heat. Two years ago, when you spoke to my colleagues on the show, you told us that heat waves really, they need to be named in order to be taken as seriously as other extreme weather events. Has there been any progress on that front since then? Yes, there has been progress. Um, you know, we're also 
equal or, or even more so advocates for health-based categorization systems so that when you have um, just the way we do hurricanes, they're a category one or a two mm-hmm. or a three, we think and are showing that a health-based categorization system is a great way to convey how deadly the risk is at any certain time in a given community. On top of that, we attach a naming convention with our partners in Seville, Spain. And we have, in a um, international consortium, we've named the third official heat wave um, this summer. And so we named Zoe last summer and have conducted an early evaluation to see, did people remember the name Zoe? And if so, did you change your behavior? Did you protect yourself and take some actions? Did you call your family? And further, did you trust the government's advice on what to do? And the very early returns from the evaluation show that the answer is yes, that people who remembered Zoe's name did act and do more, share with their uh, friends and family, and trusted the government's advice. What immediate things should governments be doing now as much of the country is grappling with extreme heat to protect people who live in their cities and towns? The biggest thing that we need is the awareness built to the level of this risk. The The risk is bigger than we think it is. And so governments need to focus on public awareness. Um, It's not rocket science, but it's got to be really focused communication about what the risk is and what people should be doing and how to recognize signs and then how to protect yourself. And nobody has to die from heat. This is one of the most positive aspects of climate action. No one has to die from this. With the right information and a place to go, nobody has to die. That was Kathy Boffman-McLeod. She's the director of the Arshtrock Resilience Center and also serves on FEMA's National Advisory Council. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, to a different extreme weather event, tornadoes, and specifically the tornado that ripped through a critical Pfizer factory in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina last week. It could mean more drug shortages in a year that has already seen scarcity of Adderall and amoxicillin and chemotherapy drugs and more. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin has obtained records that show what was being made at this Pfizer facility and who might be affected by the damage. Hey, Sydney. Hello. Hi. So what was being made at this Pfizer facility? Tell me more. Yeah, sure. So I have to say that it's not easy information to figure out. Companies are reluctant to disclose exactly what they make where. The information is often blacked out on FDA inspection records, for example. But NPR was able to use records from the National Institutes of Health to compile a list of dozens of drugs that are made there. And they include a lot of painkillers and anesthetics that are used in hospitals and given intravenously. And there are also a lot of drugs like um, naloxone, which is used to reverse opioid overdose and vitamin K, which is used to prevent bleeding in newborns. According to Pfizer, this site makes about 8% of all sterile injectables used in hospitals across the U.S. Okay, so all kinds of things being made there. When a factory site like that goes down, it would have very serious implications, I imagine. Right, and hospitals panicked. I spoke with Aaron Fox, a pharmacy director for the University of Utah Health Hospitals, 
every hospital buyer across the country, the second they heard about that tornado, everyone is just like, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> they went overboard and it resulted in some attempted hoarding. But Pfizer shut that down fairly quickly by working with wholesalers to limit what hospitals could buy to no more than 100% of their usual orders. Pfizer declined my request for an interview, but Fox praised the company for its handling of the situation. So Pfizer's not talking to you. Have they said anything at all about the situation? So they sent a letter to healthcare providers explaining that only the warehouse areas were damaged. Production areas seemed to be okay. Pfizer also sent a list of 65 products that it thinks might have disruptions based on existing inventory and market share. A lot of them were already in shortage, which is good news and bad news. The bad news is those shortages will continue for things like certain formulations of lidocaine, which is a local anesthetic. But the good news is hospitals already know how to cope. Here's Erin Fox again. She's also a national expert on drug shortages. There had to be this tornado. It seems like this is probably one of the best case scenarios where, you know, manufacturing lines aren't aren't impacted. And it was an area of the facility that can be fairly quickly um, rebuilt. And so it's not a it's not a time to panic. She expects the ripple effects of this to last a few months rather than a few years. Are there takeaways, Sydney, lessons to be learned from this? There are, and they relate to the drug shortages that happened a few years ago when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Health economist Rena Conti at Boston University told me this tornado at Pfizer is just another reminder that pharmaceutical factories are vulnerable to climate change. A lot of drug manufacturing requires access to water, which puts the factories in harm's way in places like Puerto Rico or the Gulf states. Redundancy is also important in the drug supply chain, so that when something strikes a factory, a tornado, a hurricane, mold, a bad inspection, whatever, it's not the end of the world. Still, there are a few products that are only made by Pfizer and only at that one facility, but they have been in such short supply for so long that doctors have learned to use alternatives anyway. In many ways, we're lucky the situation wasn't worse. NPR's Sydney Lupkin, thanks for bringing us up to speed on the situation. You bet. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Army Field Band has been expanding its musical genres and now has two rappers in its ranks. We'll meet them in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Lucky 13 for the Dow, 13 straight days of gains on Wall Street. The index finished up uh, nearly a quarter of a percent today. That's the longest winning streak since 1987. S&P lost a tiny fraction. The Nasdaq fell about a tenth of a percent. Some Boston Globe readers may have had some of their data compromised. That's according to an email sent to subscribers. The data were kept by a third-party vendor. Potentially stolen information includes names, phone numbers, addresses, and email addresses, but not credit card information. The Globe has hired a cybersecurity firm to investigate the incident. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Pretty bright out there still now. Light breezes as well. Tonight should be partly cloudy, a dry night. Temperature's about 70 again. And for tomorrow, some sunshine could have some off and on thunderstorms, especially in the afternoon tomorrow. 
Stormy weather for part of the day on Saturday, some sunshine too, then cooler, more comfortable on Sunday. 89 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, signed last year, included a whopping $369 billion earmarked for combating climate change. A big chunk of that money went to boosting the electric vehicle battery industry here in the U.S. But what the Biden administration did not expect was a backlash from allies. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports. The Inflation Reduction Act, known simply as the IRA, was hailed by the Biden administration as a massive climate win for the U.S. A lot of the U.S. energy leaders, whether it's government or private sector, expected this to be a celebration. That's Olga Hakova with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. She says the IRA is supposed to help the clean energy transition and challenge China's lead in electric vehicle batteries. But Hakova says the Biden administration was surprised by how it was received in Europe. When it first was rolled out, uh, there was this tremendous pushback and worry that it is a direct competition to Europe's clean energy economy and competitiveness. That's because the IRA offers big tax breaks for EV car and battery manufacturers if they're assembled in North America using materials domestically sourced or from countries which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. Europe, the U.K., and Japan are not on that list. Ebba Bush, Sweden's Minister for Energy, Business and Industry, says the IRA was creating a subsidy battle. I would say that a lot of Europeans and Swedes, including, uh, took offense of, of the Inflation Reduction Act and saw it as uh, a high risk and, and were wondering, is this driving a wedge in between uh, the U.S. and the EU? One fear is the IRA's tax breaks would lure away investments that would have gone overseas. Colin Hendricks with the Peterson Institute for International Economics says many Asian companies like Toyota and Hyundai are delaying projects in Europe because of the IRA subsidies. These are all Japanese or Korean firms that are investing in the United States to build EV batteries uh, and uh, create jobs for, for American workers. But it's not like the politicians in Korea or Japan or the European Union for that matter wouldn't on margin prefer that those jobs were back home. The Biden administration denies it's creating a subsidy race. 
Jose Fernandez, the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, says the Inflation Reduction Act will help U.S. and its allies secure new supply chains of critical minerals, such as magnesium and cobalt, that are used in lithium-ion batteries. We will need, for example, 42 times the amount of lithium that we use today and then 25 times the amount of graphite. Fernandez says the U.S. can't do that without its partners. And it's taking steps to address their concerns. From day one, we said, we will sit down with you, we will talk things through. This is not, and this is important, this is not a zero-sum game. The U.S. is partnering with more than a dozen allies to secure minerals. An agreement with Japan would take advantage of the IRA tax breaks. And the U.S. is working on a similar pact with the EU. Swedish Minister Bush says there's less tension now between allies over the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that we managed to calm that. We see the positive with really the U.S. and the Biden administration being back on the global arena for fighting climate change, and it will increase the possibility of trade uh, between us. The EU is looking at its own legislation to secure supplies of critical minerals. There are also calls for broader subsidies by member nations, all reminiscent of the IRA. Jackie Northam, NPR News. To Georgia now and new developments in one of the many cases related to the 2020 election. One-time Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is no longer contesting that he made false statements about two Georgia election workers. This change comes in a filing in a defamation suit brought against the former New York mayor by the two election workers. It is one of several cases coming to a head this summer involving Giuliani, the former president, and his allies. WABE Sam Greenglass joins me from Atlanta to talk about all of this. Hi, Sam. Hey, Juana. So, Sam, we'll get back to the latest developments in just a minute. But first, remind me who these two election workers are and what Giuliani was saying about them. Juana, let's go back to December 2020. Trump and his allies were ramping up their campaign to delegitimize the election result. Giuliani, at the time, was one of Trump's lawyers who was taking a leading role in this. And he spread this video supposedly showing Fulton County election workers pulling a suitcase of ballots from under a table in Atlanta. How can they say there's no fraud? Look at that woman. Look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room hiding around. They look like they're passing out dope. Investigators at the time found this claim to be false, but Giuliani and Trump continued to amplify it anyway. And I take it, Sam, the people in that video are the two election workers who are now suing Giuliani. Yep. Mother-daughter election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. They both testified for the January 6th congressional probe last summer. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? But he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. That is Freeman, who had to flee her home for safety. Moss said she received threats so intense she had to quit her job. Telling me that I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. A lawyer for Moss and Freeman said today that Giuliani's statement affirms that the pair honorably performed their civic duties in the 2020 presidential election. And Sam, I mean, there's a good deal of legalese in these filings, so I'm hoping you can just cut through some of that for us. How big of a deal is this really? 
Well, let's be clear, Giuliani is not saying he knew the statements were false at the time or even expressly saying he believes that they're false now. So while this filing may undercut some of the you know, persistent conspiracy theories about 2020, he's also still saying his speech is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, a Giuliani spokesman told me this filing is just designed to get to the legal issues of the case. Juana, that could allow Giuliani to avoid producing some evidence a judge says he withheld, like a text where a Trump advisor asked for examples of election fraud that, quote, doesn't necessarily have to be proven. And I mean, this is not even the only legal jeopardy that Rudy Giuliani is in right now, correct? Well, we know Giuliani was told last year that he was a target of Fulton County's criminal investigation into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn Georgia's election result. We also know that he met with Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith's office, who's investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Giuliani says he didn't do anything illegal. Still, criminal charges are expected in both cases soon, though we don't know exactly who will be on those indictments. That's Sam Greenglass of WABE in Atlanta. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Juana. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Leaders on Capitol Hill say they've made it a priority to develop regulations for artificial intelligence as the technology emerges. That story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. In sports, the Red Sox wrap up a two-game series with the Atlanta Braves tonight at Fenway Park. The Sox took last night's game. Brian Bayo gets the start for Boston tonight. Spencer Strider takes the hill for the Braves. First pitch is at 7:10. Still pretty warm out there. Should fall just as far as the low 70s overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, reaching the low to mid-90s could feel more like 100, although there should at least be a gusty wind, a slight chance of afternoon showers tomorrow. There is a heat advisory in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until Friday night. 89 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected, Comcast Business powering possibilities. And innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hunter Biden's plea deal has been put on hold after a federal judge raised concerns today over the terms of that agreement. Biden was charged last month with two misdemeanors, uh, tax crimes of failing to pay his income taxes from 2017 and 2018. Republican lawmakers have criticized the deal, claiming the president's son is getting preferential treatment. But the White House is firing back. Here's Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. 
This case was handled independently, as all of you know, by the Justice Department under the leadership of a prosecutor appointed by the former president, President Trump. Hunter Biden was set to plead guilty today after making an agreement with prosecutors for two years probation and no prison time. That plea deal was meant to avert a trial that could last for weeks, even months. In West Africa, presidential guards are holding Niger's president in his palace as the U.S., the United Nations, and many others are raising concerns about the situation. From the State Department, NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The U.S. views Niger as a key partner in the fight against terrorist groups in Africa, so Washington is watching developments there with concern. The White House is calling on, quote, elements of the presidential guard to release President Mohamed Bazoum from detention and refrain from violence. The Biden administration is telling any Americans there to limit their movements and avoid travel near the presidential palace. The United Nations Secretary General also issued a statement condemning any effort to seize power by force and to undermine democratic governance, peace and stability in Niger. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The Fed has raised interest rates another quarter point. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today. The Dow up about 82 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Two dozen small businesses in Boston will set up shop in empty storefronts in the city. It's part of a new grant program to revitalize business districts hit hard during the pandemic. Mayor Michelle Wu announced the awardees today and said they come from all different sectors and industries. From sustainable, gender-neutral clothing, multilingual childcare, community-owned markets and grocery stores, to art and dance studios, gyms, a queer bar, a multimedia outlet focused on Boston's black community. These businesses are Boston. The city says more than half the businesses are owned and operated by women and people of color. The program will be funded by nearly $3 million from the COVID-era American Rescue Plan. Eversource says it's prepared for a potential heat wave settling in. Eversource's bill stacks as the utility gets ready year-round to deal with public safety and power restoration issues that come with prolonged hot weather. He says residents can help reduce pressure on the region's electric grid, use major appliances early in the morning or later in the evening instead of during peak hours. That's what our concern is, people coming home from work from 4 to 7, and that's when we see a spike in usage from ACs going on, people cooking, electronics going on, etc. Stack suggests you use your microwave rather than stove or oven, which should heat up the kitchen. And he says close your curtains and pull down the shades to keep the sun and the heat out. The MBTA says the B branch of the Green Line should reopen by Saturday morning as planned. The T is replacing about a half mile of track on the Boston University campus and in Alston. The agency says 90 percent of the work is done. Shuttle buses have replaced trains along the entire line since it shut down last week. And the city of Lynn is looking for artists to turn bus shelters into works of art. WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports the deadline for the proposals is right around the corner. The Art on the Move initiative is a multi-organizational effort to incorporate art into commuters' daily lives. City of Lynn arts and culture planner Lucretia Thompson says bus shelters are a great tool for visually engaging with people. They're just perfect canvases because they're already there. People are using them. Why not make them more interesting? Lynn's Public Art Commission will lead a panel to select seven artists to participate in the program. The deadline for proposals is this Friday. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Sunny, hot this afternoon, a bit of a breeze as well. Tonight should be partly cloudy and dry, about the low 70s tonight. Then for tomorrow, sunshine's back, but we could have some storms, thunderstorms maybe in the afternoon. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow's highs, by the way, could reach the low to mid-90s. 89 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. An attempted coup is understood to be taking place in the West African country of Niger. The president has been held by his own guards in his own residence since this morning. In the last few hours, gunfire has been heard on the streets of the capital. Let's bring in NPR Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu. He is in neighboring Nigeria. And Emmanuel... Uh, what do we know? What details do we have in what sounds like a really rapidly changing situation? Yes, absolutely. You know, this morning, there were a group of soldiers from the presidential guard and they blocked the entrance to the presidency and other ministry buildings and have basically held the president, Mohammed Bazoum, under arrest. And it's been striking that, you know, whilst this has gone on, we've not really seen the kind of armed resistance from the army or the national guard that we might otherwise seeing coups, you know. So we're really waiting to see how this unfolds, knowing that the consequences for Niger and the wider region in the Sahel and West Africa could really be profound. You know, this is a big, largely impoverished country suffering from multiple Islamist insurgencies. And Niger is a country that has a history of coups and attempts, you know, as recently as a few years ago when it had its first democratic transfer of power during elections. Mm -hmm. So this could really unravel what were really fragile democratic gains. In the last few hours, there have actually been protests of hundreds of people marching towards the presidential palace. And we also saw footage of uh, the National Guard essentially firing live rounds and protesters scurrying away. Um, So this is really an unfolding um, and dramatic situation. Yeah. Um, What kind of response are you seeing from the international community? Well, it's been swift and strong, especially regionally. You know, the kind of response we've not always seen in response to other coups in West Africa in recent years. You know, ECOWAS is the regional bloc and the African Union. They both swiftly, you know, condemned this and said it stands with the Nigerian government. And actually a government delegation from here in Nigeria have just arrived in Niamey, the capital of Niger, to have talks with the presidential guard. And of course, there's been reaction from international allies like the United States. You know, the State Department spokesman, uh, Vidan Patel, spoke with reporters earlier this evening. We strongly support the democratically elected president, President Bazoum, and we condemn in the strongest terms any efforts to seize power by force uh, and disrupt uh, the constitutional order. We also call for the immediate release of President uh, Bazoum and respect for the rule of law and public safety. You know, Niger is probably the U.S.'s strongest ally in this region, and there have been successive military coups in countries like neighboring Mali, 
you know, that has actually severed ties with Western countries and where the Russian-backed mercenary group, the Wagner Group, has now has a significant presence. Yeah, not to mention uh, the presence of U.S. troops on the ground in Niger. What What is the likely mm-hmm. impact of today's development? Just set it in context for us, because this whole region has already been wracked by instability. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the potential destabilization here could really be grave. You know, the Sahel has suffered immensely over the last decade from Islamist insurgencies. You know, it's killed really an untold number of people, left millions displaced in desperate need in one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. And Niger is a landlocked country. You know, it's just south of Libya, wedged between Mali, Burkina Faso and Chad. And Chad is itself desperately trying to avoid the war in Sudan from spilling into its country. So... Really, there's a major diplomatic effort now to avert this and to to stop this spilling over and unraveling in the region. So many of the countries surrounding surrounding, uh, Niger will be watching this very closely. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thanks very much. That's NPR's Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu reporting from Nigeria on the situation next door in Niger. Today is the last in a series of closed-door briefings for senators on artificial intelligence. It's part of a congressional effort to try to move fast to regulate the emerging technology. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer issued this warning earlier this summer. We have no choice, no choice, but to acknowledge that AI's changes are coming and in many cases are already here. We ignore them at our own peril. Schumer has introduced legislative framework for AI law, but he's just one of many lawmakers trying to regulate what's the tech equivalent of a high-speed train. Joining us now is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So we have seen Congress sort of pick up the pace this summer in its efforts to regulate artificial intelligence. Where do things stand now? Well, despite those briefings plus congressional hearings, there's still a very long way to go. Some members are actually going back to school to try to understand this technology better. Add to that a pretty bad congressional record regulating emerging technology. And just recently, yesterday, in fact, Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley highlighted this during a judiciary subpanel hearing. So I think the real question is, will the Senate actually act? Will the leadership in both parties, both parties, will it actually be willing to act? We've had a lot of talk. But now is the time for action. And Hawley has been part of a group of senators who have tried to regulate social media, for example, but to no avail. So the track record is not great. Okay, I mean, uh, Senator Hawley raised the question, and I know we've heard Senate Majority Leader Schumer say over and over again that on this issue, Congress cannot afford to fail. So what is Schumer doing to prevent that from being the outcome? Yeah, he's personally met with more than 100 experts in the field. He's put together this series of three closed-door briefings, including the first such classified briefing on this topic. And then he plans to launch a series of forums this fall on hot-button AI issues like national security and privacy. And then he's also appointed a bipartisan group of senators to work with the rest of the Senate to, to develop an AI law. But he's admitted even that could take months. And this summer, he launched a so-called safe innovation framework. This will serve as a basis for this legislation. It focus on, focuses on regulating AI without stifling innovation. It instills guardrails to head off threats to national security and democracy, or even the economy. But he's one of many members working on this, and will have more than 500 other members to convince to get on board. That's right. So um, what are some of the other proposals that other members 
members are considering. We got a sneak peek into some possibilities during the same judiciary subpanel hearing yesterday. This was led by Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal. And the lawmakers heard from an industry executive and professors about how badly regulation is needed. And they seem to agree that some sort of new agency or department is needed, and it needs to have teeth, such as AI police. One witness professor, uh, this is a University of Montreal professor, Yashua Bengio, who's considered one of the original AI godfathers, suggested that perhaps counterfeiting humans through AI should be treated as a crime, much like counterfeiting caches under federal law. Hmm, okay. And before I let you go. Seems like a lot of this action is going on in the Senate. What about the House? Right. We're seeing individual members in the House working on this issue. But if we look at House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he's already pushing back on this idea of creating an agency to regulate AI. So once again, a reminder that Congress is very far apart on this issue as well. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Army music has come a long way since bugles and fifes. The U.S. Army Field Band has always adapted to changing tastes. Marching in parades with brass bands, string ensembles, and percussionists. Now it also includes rappers. Christopher Alston with member station WABE in Atlanta introduces us to the first two rappers to join a military band. U.S. Army Rappers Live, ATO! On stage during a festival in Atlanta's Centennial Park, a pair of soldiers in full uniform take turns trading bars as their lyrics are projected on a screen behind them. They perform as Staff Sergeants Lamar Riddick and Nicholas Feimster, their official rank. So I got this song, this next song is called Second Chance. And this uniform at the end of the day was just a second chance for me. Loyalty, duty, respect, self-service, and honor. Integrity, personal courage, what I got to offer. Feimster joined the Army last year after the pandemic gutted his solo music career. His partner Riddick brings a church background to his music and also joined last year. Feimster and Riddick went through basic training at Fort Sill in Oklahoma before joining the field band. Rap and hip hop are the most popular genre of music in the United States and I believe worldwide. That's Master Sergeant Lauren Urquhart, the senior producer of the U.S. Army Field Band. She says the two were hired specifically for their talents and also to expand the Army's outreach. Our job is to help the American public understand what the Army is about and get to know the soldiers who are serving on their behalf better. She says because of that, it was an easy decision to include rap. As musicians, we look for the best music that connects people, that helps them feel things, that tells stories, and rap music is perfect for that. Riddick and Feimster say becoming the first Army rappers wasn't easy. The process of getting the job was less like an interview and more along the lines of an American Idol-style audition 
competing against other soldiers, says Riddick. We had to sing, we had to rap, we had to freestyle. And uh, during that process, Nico and I met each other. And after meeting in the waiting room, the two got to talking and decided on the spot to combine forces, says Feimster. You know, Lamar and I became the last two, and um, we actually campaigned for each other to do it together. Because we're thinking, like, you know, if, if there's going to be a rap program, and we know the Army's real big on, like, teamwork and stuff, we're like, why don't we form a team together and really try to build this into something that's sustainable for the future? Their plan worked. Before enlisting, the 30- and 31-year-old were both civilian artists, and Feimster actually comes from a family of music royalty. His grandfather is half of the famous R&B duo Peaches and Earth. But for Feimster, his musical expression today is in service of his country, using a genre that's historically been quite explicitly anti-authority. He says there's no conflict for him. Hip-hop is what? Self-expression. That's it. You're telling a story, and that's all we're doing. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, we're just as much a part of the culture doing that as anybody else. So it's our job to just, you know, connect everyone, like connect our veterans, connect other soldiers, connect civilians, and we're pretty much the bridge that holds that together. And the pair gives Army recruiters a new tagline to work with. If they can get a job rapping in the Army, there's probably a job for you. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Alston in Atlanta. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates by a quarter point, and hence there could be another increase later this year as inflation drops close to its target rate. That story coming up in about 15 minutes. Take WBUR along wherever you're headed this summer. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening. Download or update the WBUR app now. It's the Red Sox and Braves again at Fenway Park tonight. Game two of two. Brian Bayo throws the the first pitch at 7:10. Still pretty warm out there right now in the upper 80s in Boston. Should dip to about 70 overnight tonight. And then the steam heat arrives tomorrow. May get to the mid-90s, but the humidity should make it feel a lot hotter. It's 4:49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 18th, semesteroff.com. New York City has taken in more than 90,000 migrant and asylum seekers over the past year. NPR spoke with people who spent their nights at one of the city's shelters and what they describe as dire, up to 90 people sharing two bathrooms food that's gone bad, and then there are their guards. I understand enough English to know that they're insulting us. Inside a New York City migrant shelter tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Hollywood actor Kevin Spacey has been cleared of all charges of sexual offenses against him in a court in London. The jury delivered the verdict of not guilty on all nine charges relating to four men dating back to over a decade ago. Outside the court, Kevin Spacey made this statement. There's a lot for me to process after what has just happened today. But I would like to say that I'm enormously grateful to the jury for having taken the time to examine all of the evidence and all of the facts carefully before they reach their decision. And I am humbled by the outcome today.
For more on the story, Willem Marx joins us from London. And Willem, if you could just remind us, what were the charges? Who made these allegations against Kevin Spacey? Well, one of there were multiple charges that stemmed from allegation about the actor's behavior made by four separate men between 2001 and 2013. Spacey was first charged by the state prosecutors here in the UK, known as the Crown Prosecution Service, back in May last year. That was on five counts involving three different men. In an initial hearing back in July last year, he pled not guilty. And then after prosecutors lengthened the charge sheet, he appeared again in a London courtroom back in January this year to once more plead not guilty against seven separate charges. That included the fourth individual. You've been following this story. Tell us, how did the trial unfold? Well, the trial was at Southwark Crown Court in South East London, not far from the Old Vic Theatre where he used to work. It lasted for four weeks, and during that time, the state prosecutor described Spacey as a, quote, sexual bully who took advantage of his high profile and position. The actor continued to deny the allegations. He characterized them as, quote, madness and a, quote, stab in the back from men who were financially motivated. And the jurors ultimately seemed to accept Spacey's claim that some of the sexual encounters had been consensual, and others did not amount to a crime, but may have instead been what Spacey described in court one instance as being a, quote, clumsy pass. He described his friendship with several celebrities, including actors and musicians like Elton John. He was called as a defense witness. And remember, this started with 12 counts. A 13th was added midway through. The judge threw out four of those counts on a legal technicality. And today he was found not guilty on the remaining nine counts. Just about 30 seconds left here. Can you tell us a bit more about Spacey's reaction to the court's decision? It was his 64th birthday today. He was dressed in a dark suit. He cried in the courtroom's dock as the verdict was read out. He placed his hand on his chest, mouthed towards the jurors who had acquitted him the words, thank you, thank you. It took them more than 12 hours to come to their decision. And speaking outside, you heard that statement. Uh He took no further questions. He left in a taxi, fans shouting, we love you, Kevin. Villa Marks reporting from London. Thank you. Thank you. Sinead O'Connor has died at age 56. The Irish singer was known for her intense voice, her political convictions, and the personal tumult that overtook her later years. A warning, this piece mentions suicide. NPR's Netta Ulubi has our remembrance. Alternative radio in the late 1980s rang with the voices of female singers who defied commercial expectations of what women should look like and how they should sound. But even in a crowd that included Tracy Chapman, Laurie Anderson, and the Indigo Girls, Sinead O'Connor stood out. Her first album cover was so striking, not just because of her beautiful face. It was her head, bald as an eaglet, and her wrists locked defensively across her heart. The album's title, The Lion and the Cobra, refers to a psalm about believers, the power and resilience of their faith. And throughout her early life, Sinead O'Connor was resilient. I grew up in a severely uh, abusive situation, and my mother being the perpetrator. Sinead O'Connor on NPR in 2014. So much of child abuse is about being voiceless, um, that it's a wonderfully healing thing to be able to just make sounds. O'Connor started making sounds in a home for juvenile delinquents after a childhood spent getting booted out of Catholic schools and busted repeatedly for shoplifting. But a nun gave her a guitar and she began to sing on the streets of Dublin and then with a popular Irish band called Intuanua here in 1984. 
O'Connor came to the attention of U2's guitarist, The Edge, and she got herself signed to a label. Her second studio album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, went double platinum in 1990, partly because of a hit love song written by Prince. The album was a distillation of O'Connor's prayerful sense of music and her fury over social injustice. She rejected its four Grammy nominations for being too commercial and also, quote, for destroying the human race. She was banned from a New Jersey arena when she refused to sing the Star-Spangled Banner for its lyrics glorifying bombs bursting in air. Rock critic Bill Wyman says O'Connor belonged to a proud Irish tradition of speaking up against the established order. You know, she's always on the side of the victims and the vulnerable and the weak. In 1992, at the height of her fame, Sinead O'Connor appeared on Saturday Night Live. She raised her voice against racism and child abuse. Child abuse, yeah. There was dead silence when she ended the song by ripping up a picture of then-Pope John Paul II. Fight the real enemy! What followed in the media was a collective howl of outrage. It drowned out a prescient protest against abuse in the Catholic Church. Years later, O'Connor told NPR she'd known exactly what to expect. It was grand, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I knew how people would react. I knew there would be trouble. I was quite prepared to accept that. To me, it was more important that I recognized what I will call the Holy Spirit. Rock music's Joan of Arc, as she began to be called, became increasingly erratic in her convictions. O'Connor was a feminist, then she wasn't. She supported the Irish Republican Army until she didn't. She got ordained as a Catholic priest by a rogue sect. She went from celibacy to oversharing about her tastes in sex. And her music veered unpredictably from New Age to opera to reggae. Even though O'Connor never produced another notable hit, tabloids kept covering her. Her four marriages, four divorces, four children. Her feuds with celebrities, ranging over the years from Frank Sinatra to Miley Cyrus. Music critic Bill Wyman. I think people lost respect for her credibility, and her later records just aren't as much fun. They're poorly produced and they're odd. They're just not as enjoyable. In later years, Sinead O'Connor took to Facebook and Twitter to write about her struggles with mental illness. She brought up suicide and attempted it more than once. If you came of age in the 1980s, one song you heard over and over from Sinead O'Connor's first album was this one. It's called Never Gets Old. If only somehow Sinead O'Connor could have gotten old as powerfully as her strongest songs. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed, and drug information from Meritive, 
Learn more at dynamedx.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, sunny and hot this afternoon and evening. Should be partly cloudy and dry tonight, down around 70 degrees once again. Then for tomorrow, back to the sunshine, the random chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon, and then more stormy weather for part of Saturday, calmer and cooler on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Federal Reserve again takes aim at runaway inflation. It's hiking interest rates by a quarter point. That brings the rate to its highest level in more than 22 years. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, the 25th of July. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. story is coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, a plea deal fell apart today for President Biden's son Hunter in a federal court. He'd intended to plead guilty to two misdemeanor charges, but the judge asked for more information. And the record heat wave in Phoenix has led to record demand for electricity. No one resource really solves the whole energy need, so you have to make sure that you have the right mix of resources. More on what utilities in Phoenix are doing to make sure the AC stays on. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House is still declining to comment on the legal troubles of President Biden's son, Hunter. His plea deal was put on hold by a judge in Delaware earlier today. The White House is referring questions on the matter to Hunter Biden's legal team and the Justice Department. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. The judge in the Hunter Biden case says she's not ready to accept the plea deal struck between the president's son and the Justice Department. She asked both parties to submit additional briefs and return to the court on a future date. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says the proceedings are a personal matter for Hunter Biden, who is a private citizen. The president, the first lady, they love their son and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. Hunter Biden is facing misdemeanor offenses related to his federal income taxes, and he previously made a deal with the government to avoid prosecution on a felony firearm offense. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Ukraine says Western allies are providing more than $200 million in aid to help remove landmines in the country. NPR's Hannah Palomarenko has more. Ukraine's economy minister, Yulia Sveridenko, said the $244 million in aid comes from Western partners and the Howard Buffett Foundation. Ukraine is set to receive dozens of demining machines, hundreds of metal detectors, and other related equipment. Sverdenka says buried explosive devices and unexploded ordnance are a huge problem in recently liberated territories. 
She says these must be removed to restore land for farming and civilian infrastructure. The Mines Advisory Group, based in the UK, says Ukraine is now the most mined country in the world. For NPR News, I'm Hanna Palomarenko in Kyiv. Israel's Supreme Court says it will hear appeals against a contentious new law that reduces the court's oversight powers. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. The new law blocks the Supreme Court from overturning various actions of the government deemed to be unreasonable. The right-wing government accuses the court of liberal overreach and says this change rebalances Israel's separation of powers. The law drove hundreds of thousands of Israelis into the streets for months before it passed. They feared it's the first step in a democratic backsliding toward authoritarian rule. As soon as the law passed Monday, good governance groups rushed to petition Israel's Supreme Court to overturn it. The Supreme Court says it will not file an injunction against the law, but it will take up appeals against it in September after a summer recess. Legal experts say the chances are low that the court will overturn the law. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Wall Street in mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow gaining 82 points to end the day at 35,520. The Nasdaq down 17. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Dangerously hot conditions are expected to move in tomorrow. There's a heat advisory for much of Massachusetts in effect from early tomorrow through Friday. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us what to expect. Well, it's the hottest weather we've had so far this summer. Highs in the mid-90s tomorrow and Friday. Oppressive humidity, too. So the heat index will be around 100 degrees. Storm-free this evening, but tomorrow scattered thunder develops during the mid-afternoon and will last into the evening. Not every city or town will see a storm, but some of the storms could become severe. So be aware tomorrow and prep to seek shelter indoors if necessary. Another round of storms is likely on Saturday with a high near 90. Relief arrives on Sunday will be much less humid with high Highs 75 to 80. That's WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. The full forecast again is coming up. More Healy administration is giving out more than $11 million in grants to reduce carbon emissions in the transportation sector. People can apply for a total grant of $500,000 to replace an older medium or heavy diesel, heavy-duty diesel vehicle or another piece of equipment with a new electric version. That includes trucks, school buses, forklifts, and ferries. The governor says the state's transportation system represents approximately 40 percent of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Average price of gasoline in the state is up three cents a gallon since yesterday. Triple A Northeast says the statewide average is 361. It has risen six cents a gallon in the past month. The lowest average in the state is in Hamden County at 351 a gallon. The Franklin Park Zoo is home to a new baby Maasai giraffe. The male calf was born earlier this month. Dr. Malu Chelli of the zoo says the birth is especially important because the Maasai giraffe is an endangered species. We know that the global population of giraffe is in decline, has declined by about 40% over the last 30 years. And so for us, it's a joyous occasion. Maasai giraffes are the tallest land animals on Earth, coming in at about 18 feet. Visitors will have to wait to see the as-yet-unnamed giraffe as it continues to bond with its mother, Amari. The male calf will likely move to a different zoo in the future to avoid a conflict with its dad, Chad. In the forecast, hot into the evening hours should be partly cloudy and dry overnight tonight, about 70 for a low. Tomorrow, some sunshine, also the chance of some thunderstorms in the afternoon, and then more stormy weather for part of the day on Saturday. Pretty hot on Saturday, cooler on Sunday. 89 degrees still in Boston at 5.07.
WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Bad news if you've been waiting to take out a loan. Interest rates are on the rise again. The Fed just announced it's raising them to their highest level in 22 years. Stacey Vanek-Smith was at the press conference and joins us now. Hey there. Hi, Juana. So, Stacey, tell us what happened at this meeting. Well, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell announced the Fed is raising interest rates a quarter percentage point. Uh, The Fed has raised rates consistently for about the last year, with the exception of last month when they hit the pause on rate hikes. That made Wall Street and consumers very happy because raising interest rates makes your credit card rates go up, makes loans more expensive. So we got a breather last month, but our ratecation is over. All right. So why did the Fed pause last month and why is it back to raising interest rates now? Well, it's all in the name of something economists will often call a soft landing. You mean like an airplane? Like an airplane. Yeah. So when the Fed raises interest rates, it's meant to fight inflation, but it does that by slowing the economy down. So raising interest rates makes it more expensive for us to borrow money. So we borrow less and we spend less, which means there's less demand for stuff. And that tends to bring prices down. But it also means companies sell less stuff. So they stop expanding. They might start laying people off and that can create a recession. So the Fed wants to raise interest rates just enough to slow the economy down to where inflation starts to fall, but not so much we end up in a serious recession. And Chair Powell actually spoke about this tricky balance at the press conference today. It's really a question of how do you balance the two risks, the risk of doing too much or doing too little. And, you know, we, I would say that, um, you know, we're coming to a place where, where there really are risks on both sides. For the last year, the Fed has taken pretty aggressive action. Interest rates are higher now than they've been in decades, like you said. A lot of people say the pause was to just see how things were settling and if we can hopefully strike that balance, get our soft landing. But I mean, inflation has been falling and unemployment is near historic lows. It kind of seems to me like that soft landing is happening. So why not just leave interest rates right where they are? After all, raising interest rates is hard on everybody. That is true. And like you say, inflation's at 3%. That's very close to the Fed's goal of 2% inflation. There's been a lot of pressure to to back off, for the Fed to back off on all these rate hikes. But Dartmouth economist Matthew Slaughter says he thinks the Fed is right to be cautious. Inflation has slowed a lot. um, And so people are now starting to say, wow, we're going to have a soft landing. Um, That's looking more likely. I've always been team soft landing aspirationally. I think the, the the empirical economist to me have been more, mm, that's pretty unlikely. So Slaughter points out that historically speaking, when countries battle inflation, it almost always involves a lot of people losing their jobs. So maybe this is the exception, but that would be exceptional. Okay, so Stacey, what does the Fed think about people possibly losing their jobs? Well, Jerome Powell actually talked about this today as well. It's not that we're aiming to to raise unemployment, but I would just say the historical record, we have to be honest about the historical record, which does suggest that when central banks go in and slow the economy to bring down inflation, the result tends to be some softening in labor market conditions. And so that is still the, the likely outcome here. 
So what he's saying is, yes, the unemployment rate is low now, but that could likely change. A lot of times, you know, big economic actions like raising interest rates can take some time to play out. Uh, in fact, economist Matthew Slaughter is from Minnesota, and he told me in a lot of ways, central banking reminds him of the sport of curling. I am familiar with the sport. I do not understand this. Please keep going. <laughs> it's when they push the big stone down the ice, and Slaughter says the Federal Reserve is kind of trying to direct the economy like that. Push the stone down the ice, off it goes. Like they let it go, it's going down the ice. The team works, and they got the little brooms, and it kind of brushed the ice, and they're hoping to have some certain outcome at the other end of the of the rink. Um, but there's nothing they can do about it other than wait. So we wait. Indeed, that is Stacey Vanek-Smith. Thank you. Thank you. The country's fifth largest city, Phoenix, is enduring its longest heat wave in recorded history, and that is driving record-breaking demand for electricity. Catherine Davis-Young from member station KJZZ visited a power station to see how utilities are keeping up. For one Phoenix-area utility, Salt River Project, more than three weeks of temperatures above 110 have meant turning on extra natural gas turbines. Bob Ellis is the plant director at SRP's Agua Fria Generating Station. This is where SRP turns for additional power when the system sees peak demand. The oldest turbines have been here since the late 1950s, and while they still work, they take 12 to 14 hours to power up. You've got a big hunk of steel, that steam turbine, and you have to warm that up, and you have to make sure it's evenly warmed before you actually put it online. SRP can predict when they'll need extra power, but they can't always plan hours ahead. So this year, SRP installed two new turbines at this plant. Ellis says those can start generating enough power for 22,000 homes in under 10 minutes. Ellis says that helps SRP be better prepared for disruptions. We get a lot of fluctuations from maybe another power plant trip. It could be a monsoon that came in and wiped out a bunch of transmission lines but we use these to smooth out the grid. That's crucial, especially this summer. This is the longest heat wave in Phoenix history. Daytime temperatures have hit 119 and overnight lows have hovered in the 90s. SRP and Phoenix's other utility, APS, have both reported the highest power use ever. Air conditioning is probably one of our single largest loads. Pam Suryella is with SRP. She says it's not just that summers are getting hotter. The metro area population has also more than doubled in 30 years. To meet growing demand, power companies say they're relying on a mix of sources from renewables to natural gas. No one resource really solves the whole energy need, so you have to make sure that you have the right mix of resources in your portfolio to, to ensure reliability. That's why Suryelet says SRP continues to look for ways to add backup power to that mix, like the new turbines at the Agua Fria plant. They're also investing in battery storage that could keep homes powered if other sources were disrupted. Because if Phoenix did experience a power outage during this heat, the results could be catastrophic. A recent study in the journal Environmental Science and Technology found in that worst-case scenario, nearly half the city's population would need emergency care. Nearly 13,000 would die. In hot cities, air conditioning is a critical lifeline. 
David Hondula directs Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation, and he was among the study's co-authors. According to the study, extreme weather and natural disasters nationwide are making blackouts more common than they used to be. But Hondula doesn't expect Phoenix will see a deadly power outage anytime soon. We're talking about slivers of a fraction of a percent of possibility. Still, Hondula says the study serves as a reminder that lowering temperatures even a few degrees could save lives. That's why he wants Phoenix to plant more shade trees and increase the use of cool roof technology. A cooler city would be a much safer one, a much more protective one against adverse impacts from this type of event. Climate change is making heat waves more intense and more frequent, and Phoenix's population is still growing. Hondulet says that's why the city will have to continue to find ways to adapt beyond just AC. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Phoenix. As cities like Phoenix find new ways to adapt to the heat, let's talk now about how our own bodies have evolved to cool us down. We are talking sweat. In addition to its cooling effects, it turns out that sweat has another function, one that's invisible but super important. NPR's Michaeline Duclef explains why stinky sweat can actually be a signal of something good. Back in college, I had an embarrassing moment. My girlfriend borrowed my backpack for a weekend trip, and when she gave it back to me, she said, Michaeline, you must sweat a lot because your backpack stinks. The arm straps smell like onions. Ew! Her exact words may have been a little different, but you get the idea. As I stood there, I remember thinking, does my sweat really smell that bad? No, I don't think it does. It certainly doesn't have these really stinky, odorous molecules. That's Gavin Thomas. He's a microbiologist at York University, and he studies sweat. He says human sweat on its own is actually pretty much odorless. So most sweat is salty water. That's the sweat that cools you down. But And that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in this other type of sweat, which is produced in our underarms. This other type of sweat contains not just salty water, but also a whole cornucopia of molecules, oils, proteins, and fats. The bacteria living on our skin eat some of these compounds, and they're the ones that stink. Thomas and his colleagues have found one species of bacteria in particular, called Staphylococcus hominins, generates a very pungent odor. We've had people describe it as kind of a oniony smell, I mean, a cheesy oniony smell. They do smell pretty bad. So it's this little critter that made my backpack smell like onions. Okay, now before you start scrubbing down with antibacterial soap, there's something you need to know. These bacteria are really good for you and your skin. Without them, you're in trouble. That's Richard Gallo. He's a dermatologist at the University of California, San Diego. He and his colleagues have found that these bacteria actually help protect our skin from problems like eczema. And they also... They basically make a type of antibiotic. Which kills some dangerous microbes that can make you really sick. Gallo and his colleagues have also found that your body itself makes antimicrobial molecules and puts them inside your sweat. Mix all of that together and... Sweat is a almost like an antibiotic juice. And as the water evaporates those antibiotics actually increase in, in concentration. So the next time you're hot, sticky, and maybe a little stinky, before you towel off, thank your sweat and the bacteria that eat it for helping to keep your skin safe and healthy. Michaeline Ducliffe, NPR News. 
And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Why the White House appears to be sticking with the term Bidenomics despite signs that voters don't buy it. That's still to come in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. On Wall Street, lucky 13 for the Dow, 13 straight days of gains. The index finished up nearly a quarter of a percent today, the longest winning streak since 1987. S&P lost a tiny fraction, and the Nasdaq fell about a tenth of a tenth of a percent. Medical device company Boston Scientific is planning an expansion in the Land O'Lakes. The Boston Business Journal reports the Marlboro-based company will build a 400,000-square-foot campus near Minneapolis. Boston Scientific already employs thousands of people in Minnesota. The new facility could add 175 more. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It is now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Still mainly sunny in the Boston area right now. Still pretty hot, 89 degrees. Tonight should be partly cloudy and dry, down around 70, 72 again. Then for tomorrow, some sunshine. Also, the chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon. Look for high temperatures in the low to mid-90s tomorrow. Again, 89 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A plea deal fell apart today for President Biden's son, Hunter. He appeared in federal court in Delaware where he intended to plead guilty to two misdemeanors for failure to pay his taxes in 2017 and 2018, a time period during which Hunter acknowledges he was struggling with addiction. Today, though, the judge unexpectedly said she is not ready to make a decision in this case. WHYY's Chris Barish was in the courtroom and joins us from Delaware. Hey there. How you doing? I am well, thank you. Although I gather this development caught a lot of people, including Hunter Biden himself, off guard today. What exactly happened? Well, heading into the hearing, conventional wisdom was that this was a done deal. Hunter was going to plead guilty. The judge would accept the agreement, and then she would set a sentencing date. Now, he could face up to a year in prison on each of the two tax charges, but the prosecutors are recommending probation. Instead, the judge she has said she has loads of concerns and needs more info saying she wasn't ready to, quote, rubber stamp the agreement. Now, specifically, she asked for clarification around what this would mean for other possible crimes he had committed or could have committed. Could he still be charged in the future or if this deal would make him immune, would make him immune? Now, to provide a little bit of context, the judge is Mary Ellen Narika. She was nominated by President Trump in 2017. 
David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, is also a Trump appointee. Huh. And just to complicate things, there was a third charge at issue as well. What was that? Yeah, this had to do with the purchase of a handgun Hunter Biden made in 2018. He lied and said he was not using drugs at the time he made the purchase, and that's a felony. Now, under an agreement he struck with Weiss's office, he'd go into a diversion program. And that meant that if he remains drug-free, doesn't commit any other crimes, and follows other conditions for two years, the charge would be dismissed. Now, the holdup was that the, in the event he violates the conditions, the parties wanted the judge to decide whether he had done so. But she objected, and, and she was like, wondered if that's even constitutional, because the government brings charges, not the judiciary. And she pressured, pressured the lawyers, and they even acknowledged there was no precedence no precedent at all for such judicial action. Now, the White House has all along been um, very reluctant to weigh in on Hunter Biden and his legal troubles. Did anybody comment on these latest developments? Well, after the hearing, uh, his Biden's press secretary made this statement to reporters, and I'll just read it. Hunter Biden is a private citizen, and this was a personal matter for him. As we have said, the president, the first lady, they love their son, and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. This case was handled independently, as all of you know, by the Justice Department under the leadership of a prosecutor appointed by the former president, President Trump. Now, as for the president, his mantra has been that he loves his son and is proud of him. And I'm going to skip ahead and just uh, ask you to sum up for us quickly. Where does this case go next? Well, today's hearing entered with Hunter entering a not guilty plea. Now, both sides have now two weeks to file briefs that address the issues she raised, and then we can expect her to schedule a new hearing with terms she can accept. That is WHYY's Chris Barish from Delaware. Thanks for your reporting. All right, thank you so much. The physicist behind the creation of the atomic bomb is getting a lot of attention because of that big new Hollywood biopic, Oppenheimer. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Amid all this publicity, those who lived near where the bomb was tested back in 1945 in New Mexico are fighting to be heard. They were harmed by radiation, but have never been compensated. Nate Hedgie from the public radio podcast Outside In reports. Paul Pino grew up in his family's ranch near Carrizozo, New Mexico. And he came from tough stock. His dad was struck by lightning. His mom and brothers walked 10 miles a day herding cattle. And for some of them, nothing could kill them but radiation. Radiation that fell from the Trinity test. That was the code name for when, about 40 miles from here, J. Robert Oppenheimer and his team of scientists tested the world's first atomic bomb. The resulting explosion created a plume so big that it spread radioactive ash more than 100 miles away, including on Carrizozo. Some people thought it was the end of the world. And they started praying like crazy, you know, to Santa Rita or whoever, because they thought the sun's coming up on the wrong side of the world. The project was top secret. The federal government told locals at the time that it was just an ammo dump explosion, that there was no danger. But the resulting fallout from the Trinity test burned the hair off cattle and covered the land in white dust. As late as the 1980s, government studies showed that people living in the fallout zone were exposed to unsafe levels of radiation. Hundreds in the area have since been diagnosed with radiogenic cancers, including Pino's older brother and his mom. 
She died from bone cancer. Pino says it was incredibly painful. Like if you were on the rack and getting stretched or those medieval things they used to do to torture people, she went through that like every day because of cancer. When are we going to hold our government accountable for testing a nuclear device in our backyard? That's Tina Cordova. Like Pino, she grew up downwind of the Trinity test and is leading an effort to get the federal government to provide restitution for cancer patients and their families there. She wants Congress to do that by amending the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. It was established in 1990 to provide a $50,000 payment to radiogenic cancer patients who live downwind of nuclear tests. But right now, it only covers a few counties in the Southwest that were exposed to fallout from other tests in Nevada in the 1950s and 60s. How is it that we were left out when we were the very first people exposed to radiation as a result of an, of an atomic bomb? Cordova wants the act greatly expanded to include not only victims of the Trinity test, but cancer patients in other states and U.S. territories as well who were exposed to fallout from nuclear explosions between 1944 and 1962. The bottom line is American citizens, human beings in the American West, including New Mexico, were horribly harmed because of our government's pursuit of nuclear superiority. And those American citizens need to be acknowledged and taken care of. Cordova has the ear of New Mexico Democratic Senator Ben Ray Lujan. He has repeatedly introduced legislation in Congress that would amend the act, but it never passes. Many of my colleagues that do not support these efforts say that it's, uh, it costs too much money. The government estimates the amendment would cost about $5 billion a year. But proponents point out that the U.S. spends nearly 10 times that, maintaining its nuclear arsenal. Lujan pushes back on critics of the amendment. What I'll tell them is go look at our constituents in the eyes and tell them that their lives or their parents' lives or kids' lives don't matter and that it's too expensive to care for them. The latest iteration of the bill was introduced in the Senate in May. For NPR News, I'm Nate Hedgie in Carrizozo, New Mexico. Twenty states have laws that restrict gender-affirming hormone therapy for children. Many of those bans, nearly half, are being challenged in federal court and breaking new legal ground. The question of do parents have a right to provide their children with gender-affirming care is a new question. Come back tomorrow to Morning Edition for more on the arguments for and against the bans. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about six minutes on All Things Considered, a new analysis shows just how hot life can be for Americans who reside in or near big cities. I was surprised at how far out the urban heat island effect was. I was thinking once you kind of got out of the city core, it was just going to drop off the cliff. That's coming up on the research. What the research reveals is coming up in just about six minutes. Still pretty warm out there for us, falling just as far as the low 70s overnight tonight. Then tomorrow and Friday, the mercury goes up to 11, meaning the low to mid-90s. It's 5.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. 
At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Rudy Giuliani is no longer contesting claims he made after the 2020 presidential election about two Fulton County, Georgia election workers. The election workers are suing Giuliani for defamation, as Sam Greenglass of member station WABE reports. As then-President Donald Trump questioned the election's legitimacy, Giuliani spread a video supposedly showing election workers in Atlanta pulling a suitcase of ballots from under a table. Mother and daughter Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss testified in Congress they were reaching for a candy. Moss says the ordeal has been distressing. It's affected my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. Giuliani is not saying he knew these claims were false at the time, and he still wants the suit dismissed, saying his speech is protected by the First Amendment. Separately, Giuliani has been told by Fulton County prosecutors he's a target of their election probe. Charging decisions are expected next month. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A jury in England has acquitted actor Kevin Spacey on sexual assault charges. NPR's Lauren Freyer says the jury deliberated for about 12 hours before delivering its decision. On hearing the verdict, Spacey wiped away tears and mouthed the words, thank you, to the jury. Today is his 64th birthday. He'd been charged with nine counts of sexual assault for allegedly groping three men aggressively and performing a sex act on another while the victim was passed out. The incidents date back to the early 2000s when Spacey was acting at London's Old Vic Theatre. His defense was that he was, quote, a big flirt who had consensual fling and made what, in retrospect, was a clumsy pass, he said, at someone whose interest he misread. Spacey could have faced jail time if convicted. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures are expected to top 90 degrees in the next two days, and doctors are warning people to be vigilant. Dr. Ali Raja is Mass General Hospital's deputy chair of emergency medicine. He says heat waves are especially dangerous for seniors, kids under 10, and people who have underlying medical conditions. He says it's important to look out for each other when the weather gets this hot. Whenever you start noting somebody getting confused or stopping sweating or even vomiting, that's when you want to call 911. Heat stroke is a real emergency, and that's going to need treatment in a hospital. That's not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to handle yourself. Roger says people should take breaks from physical activity if they're outside and seek air conditioning if they start to feel overheated. The North End restaurant owner accused of shooting at a man on Hanover Street two weeks ago will remain in custody. Today, a judge found Patrick Mendoza to be dangerous and ordered him held for 120 days. Mendoza is accused of shooting at a man with whom he had a long-standing feud. Nobody was hurt. The Boston Licensing Board has suspended the license of Monica's Trattoria, his restaurant, to serve food and alcohol until management there is transferred away from Mendoza. Also in the news, the owner of a Massachusetts food truck business is heading to federal prison after he admitted that he received pandemic relief funds he was not entitled to. 
Lock Vaux of Boston operated smart gourmet food trucks in a company called Indie Publish. Federal prosecutors say Vaux used the money to invest in the stock market. He was sentenced today to two years in prison in order to pay more than $1.5 million in restitution and forfeiture. Former Boston Bruins Captain Patrice Bergeron held a farewell press conference today to say goodbye to fans. The 19-year veteran announced his retirement yesterday. Here's WBR's Dave Faneuf. Bergeron says no one thing led to the decision to hang up his skates, but he does say his body sent him clear messages that this was the right time. As for his future, Bergeron was asked if coaching is a possibility. It'll be a nice change to, to just be able to kind of be the Uber driver for the family for a little bit and, and, and just relax and, and, and that's it. So, um, well, yeah, never say never, but I don't, you know, for now, I don't have like a, a want or a will to, to coach. Bergeron says he's grateful to Bruins fans and a city that took him under its wings as an 18-year-old from Canada. He retires as the Bruins' third all-time goal scorer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner. Shop, dine, and enjoy the ambiance of Coolidge Corner in the heart of Brookline at the Sidewalk Shopping Event this Saturday and Sunday, 11 to 4. There's a heat advisory up for tomorrow from 11 in the morning until 8 Friday night. Could rise to the low to mid-90s tomorrow and Friday. Some isolated thunderstorms are possible for tomorrow. 89 degrees still now in the Boston area. The time is 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR. And from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tens of millions of Americans continue to deal with scorching temperatures. July is on pace to be the hottest month the world has seen since we started keeping records. A new analysis shows that for the vast majority of Americans who live in urban areas, the heat is even worse. To explain that, we are joined by a member of NPR's Climate Desk, Nathan Rod. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so I think most of us kind of know that cities are hotter, feel hotter than rural areas. Why? What's contributing to that? Yeah, I mean, so it's because of something called the urban heat island effect, which, you know, as you said, I think a lot of people intuitively know, and it is not a new discovery. You know, researchers have shown for decades, if not longer, that temperatures are generally hotter in urban centers than they are in rural areas. Uh, And the reason for that is the built environment. You know, fewer trees mean less shade. Buildings can block cooling winds. You know, concrete absorbs heat during the day and emits it at night. If you've ever felt the hood of your car after driving it a bit or, you know, walked behind a window air conditioning unit, you know that those things generate heat. Oh, yes. Okay, so it's all those factors together combining that are making our cities hotter. What do we learn from this new analysis? 
Yeah, so this new analysis we're talking about, which was conducted by the nonprofit research group Climate Central, aims to see how much hotter different census tracts are in 44 of the country's biggest cities. And they did that by creating an index that essentially shows how much hotter a developed area is compared to what it would be if it was just a field or a forest. So they're not measuring actual temperatures, which is something that researchers I've talked to prefer. Uh, Jen Brady, the lead data analyst at Climate Central, co-led this project. I was surprised at how far out the urban heat island effect was. I was thinking once you kind of got out of the city core, it was just going to drop off the cliff and it would go from, you know, eight degrees more to two degrees more. But really, in a lot of these cities, you're maintaining four or five degrees further and further outside even the city core. And Mary Louise, it's important to remember when we're talking about these kinds of record heat events that so many places are dealing with right now, five degrees more is actually a really big deal yeah. because we know that even a small increase in temperature can lead to much greater health risks for people and higher cooling costs. Okay, next question. Are these hotter temperatures felt evenly across the city? No. Definitely not. Uh, this analysis by Climate Central did not layer on socioeconomic or race data, but there is a lot of other research it shows. There are huge discrepancies in who experiences even hotter temperatures in just a single city. So Angel Shu, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, she published a study on this just a couple of years ago. So we find that Americans in major U.S. cities living two times below the poverty line are exposed to almost a full degree higher Celsius of this urban heat island effect compared to their wealthier counterparts. And the same thing goes with people of color. And she says that's generally because of a lack of tree cover in these neighborhoods, greater density of people, and more pollution in industry. Okay, so what options do we have to protect people from, from all this heat? So, I mean, the biggest thing people can do is stop warming the planet. Research published earlier this week found that heat waves in America and Europe, the ones that they're dealing with right now, would be virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. Uh, on a smaller scale, though, there's a lot communities can do. They can plant more trees. They can install shade structures. Uh, Los Angeles, Charlotte, North Carolina, and other cities are painting streets brighter colors to help reflect sunlight. So there's a lot that can be done from an urban planning standpoint to try to make these temperatures a little more bearable. NPR's Nathan Rott. Thanks for your reporting. Yeah, thank you. Bidenomics. That is a word President Biden and his team have been using a whole lot in recent weeks. Polls consistently show a majority of Americans disapprove of how Biden is handling the economy. And the White House knows it needs to rectify that, especially ahead of a re-election campaign. So it's embracing this label in an effort to sell the president's economic agenda. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid reports on this strategy and its risks. The president's central economic vision is to grow the economy from, as he says, the middle out and the bottom up. He's traveling to Maine on Friday to spread this message. And there's a certain term he uses constantly to describe his agenda. Under my plan, under Bidenomics, we've That's created Bidenomics. jobs That's Bidenomics. That's Bidenomics in action. Bidenomics is just another way of saying restoring the American dream. It might seem like a lot, but the White House says there's a good reason for that. In marketing, there's a rule called the rule of seven. You have to hear something seven times in order to remember it. That's the White House communications director, Ben LeBolt. In communications, we need a repeated theme, a repeated frame for people to remember it. And so Bidenomics became the wraparound for a few things, the core pillars of the president's economic agenda, 
investing in America, empowering workers, and lowering costs. Republicans mock it and are using it to describe things people don't like about the economy, like inflation. Lori Cox-Hahn teaches political science at Chapman University in California. I'm not sure anybody really knows what Bidenomics is supposed to mean. And the risk there is then other people will continue to define it in a negative way and the White House can lose that narrative. The White House insists it has a clear message. This is an agenda to reverse decades of tax cuts for the rich and cuts to government spending championed by Republicans. The Biden team recognizes there's a gap between the president's popularity and the popularity of his policies, say building new bridges or lowering the cost of insulin. And this new messaging strategy is an effort to close that gap. But some experts say this strategy also means the president is owning the economy, all of it. He's literally putting his name on it. Karen Petru is a financial analyst who's worried that this strategy could actually help former President Donald Trump, the current Republican frontrunner. I don't mind the term Bidenomics. What I mind is that the president is putting his name on economic success, which most Americans aren't experiencing And I fear that that will be very damaging to his electoral prospects. But the White House points out many economic indicators are improving, easing inflation, low unemployment, wage gains. We've had one of the best labor markets in generations. That's Jared Bernstein. He's one of the president's top economic advisors. We just got a report showing that consumer confidence came up in uh, July well above expectations. Economists generally seem to agree with the White House. Jay Zagorski is with Boston University. He told me that in the short term, the economy is looking great. But there's a caveat. Times can be good, but we're not worried just about today. We're also thinking about tomorrow. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. Ultimately, experts say it's less about the label and more about how Americans feel about the economy. Signs suggest they're beginning to feel better, but they're not totally convinced yet that happy times are here to stay. Asma Khalid, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Climate change is making heat waves like the ones currently plaguing parts of North America and Europe hotter, longer, and more frequent. Some urban areas are experimenting with different solutions to keep cities cooler. Kaylee Wells from member station KCRW reports on one initiative in Los Angeles that's trying to bring down the temperatures by painting the streets. When a heat wave hits, cities are at a big disadvantage. Unlike forests or water, buildings and roads absorb heat from the sun and radiate it back out, amplifying the heat. Since 2017, the city of Los Angeles has been trying to fight that effect by painting roads with a more reflective paint to bounce the sun's energy back into space. So the color doesn't look that different. Jonathan Parfrey directs a nonprofit called Climate Resolve that has partnered with the city on this project. 
He says the color varies street to street because there are a couple different paints they use. But overall, it's not as light as you'd think. And the important part is... If you brought a laser thermometer out on that street, uh, you would see a distinct difference between traditional asphalt and the newly applied material. Since the city started this program, they've added hundreds of miles of what they call cool pavement. Ryan Solomon, who lives on a cool street in West LA that was painted last year, says it helps. I thought it was a silly idea until they did one half of the street before they did the other half. And I was walking and it was like, it felt like a wave almost you hit. Still hot, but like, I think it makes a little bit of a difference. Some of his neighbors like Carolyn Anderson aren't so sure. I don't think it makes a big difference in terms of um, temperature. Since these streets were first put in, researchers have been trying to quantify just how much they do help. Kelly Turner is one of them. She's an urban planning and geography professor at UCLA. They work at doing a specific job, which is to curtail the amount of heat that's absorbed by asphalt. She says that works best in the late afternoon. The street isn't giving off that oven effect because it didn't absorb as much heat during the day. But she says it's not as effective at curbing heat at other times. It does re-radiate a certain amount of heat back at any object that is directly above it. Uh, in the midday hours from about 11 to 1. That means a person walking at midday might actually feel hotter. So whether or not cool pavements work depend on when they're used. Turner says it might not be great for a school where kids are out playing in the middle of the day, but in a residential neighborhood? Maybe people are at work during the day and in the evening time they want to go out and walk their dogs and so you know, when they're walking, they, they will feel cooler and their pet's paws will be cooler. And then it's kind of a really successful implementation of an intervention. Cities are trying other things too, like planting trees and making roofs more reflective. Turner says that while shade is a much more effective way to keep people cool, these reflective streets have a role to play. And it's not just happening in L.A. Phoenix and San Antonio are doing this too. Other cities have been considering it. Las Vegas and Miami, Orlando. Kurt Schickman leads a group that focuses on extreme heat at the Adrian Arsh Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. They work with governments and experts in different fields to help cities reduce their heat risks. And he says there's growing interest in this tool, not just in the U.S., but around the world. In Australia, in Southern Europe, and Athens, for example. So it, it's definitely something that's, that's taking hold. Meanwhile, L.A. will continue to expand its program, allotting $4 million to make more streets cool in the coming year. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. You are listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. And join us again at City Space Monday, August 7th for a conversation about ice cream with local ice cream makers. Come ready for a Sunday at City Space. Becomes an ice cream parlor for one night. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Again, that's Monday, August 7th. There's a heat advisory up for tomorrow from late morning until about 8 o'clock Friday night could rise temperatures to the low to mid-70s tomorrow and 90s, that is, tomorrow and Friday. Some isolated thunderstorms possible for tomorrow. And because of that, we've also got a flood watch in effect from morning through evening tomorrow during the day. Strong thunderstorms in Boston, Worcester, and Springfield could produce flooding, especially in areas of poor drainage, including clogged storm drains. This is WBUR 88 degrees now at 549. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio. To help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com. We've all noticed more and more businesses asking us to leave a tip, from coffee shops and breweries to takeout and drive throughs The box popped up when I went to pay, like, what tip amount? I thought, you know, it's fast food. I don't tip. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't. But is Subway fast food? I wasn't sure. I started to panic. I'm Tiziana Deering, navigating the new rules of tipping. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The poet Terrence Hayes writes words that make it feel like he's holding up a mirror to himself, to daily news headlines, to history. Hayes is a National Book Award winner, also winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and author of a new collection of poems just out. It is titled So to Speak. Terrence Hayes, so good to have you with us. Very happy to be here. Thank you, Mary Louise. Yeah. So I, when you hold up this mirror, and I don't know if that's the way it feels to you, but it was the way it felt to me reading these. You hold up this mirror, and then the reflections are refracting and intertwining and double back on each other. There was one poem that just reading it silently by myself on the page, I really felt this. And it's a poem about George Floyd. Tell me what was going on in your head as you wrote it, and then I'm going to let people listen to you read it. Well, the idea of the mirror is interesting because I do think that my basic approach to poetry is to maintain some sort of practice um, with a few exercises thrown in there to disrupt that practice. Hmm. So even on this day, you know, I was at my writing table in my office with my window up and uh, the marchers were on their way to Washington Square to protest the death of George Floyd. So and this my was first, right after he died? Yes, okay. it was the very first gathering. Okay. And my first impulse to go to this idea of mirrors and practice was to put my window down so I could see the very beginning of the crowds. And I did not go. I put my window down and went and continued to try to write. But of course, after even 30 minutes, it was thousands of people. And so I left. I went to join them. Uh, there was nothing. You know, people were pulling their phones out and looking for things to say. And of course, I was in the middle of writing, so I didn't have anything to say either. Yeah. And then I went back to my desk and resumed my practice, and this is what came out. <clears throat> George Floyd. You can be a bother who dyes his hair, Dennis Rodman, blue in the face of the man, kneeling in blue in the face, the music of his wrist. Watch your mouth. It's little more than a door being knocked. Out of the ring of fire, around the afternoon came evening's bell of the ball and chain around the neck of the unarmed brother being ground down to gunpowder dirt can be inhaled like a puff the magic bullet point of transformation both kills and fires the life of the party like it's 1999 bottles of beer on the wall street people who sleep on the streets do not sleep without counting yourself lucky rabbit's foot of the mountain lion do not sleep without making your bed of the riverboat gambling there will be no stormy weather on the water bored to death any means of killing time is on your side of the bed of the truck transporting emmett till the break of day Emmett till the river runs. Dry your face, the music of the spheres. Emmett till the end of time. Terrence says, I'm listening to you read that. And I, what is going through my head is you're writing about something deadly serious, really sad, and you're having so much fun with the language. Do I have that right? I mean, I guess you would call it fun or just a kind of engagement, you know? 
if I go back to the idea of a practice, I don't even think those kinds of adjectives like good or bad, failure or success matter if you're just trying to be in that practice. So, yeah, I think fun, uh, grief, ecstasy, anguish, anxiety. So let's talk sonnets. Um, I have mm -hmm. never met you in person, but uh, reading your work and reading some interviews you've given in past, you don't strike me as a guy who enjoys being constrained by a bunch of rules. Sonnets have rules. 14 lines, can't be 13, can't be 15. Why limit yourself that way? Well, I do like bending rules. Uh, so I'm very aware, and I say in my teaching to my students, about bending the rules so that we know that there was a rule to be broken. Otherwise, it's, it's anarchy. For me, in the sonnet form, it's that volta, the idea that you're going to have to change your mind at some point if you know sort of psychologically how the sonnet's set up. So I think about that as an American. You know, we would never have just one volta. For us, this is going to be constant changes from black presidents to whatever follows black presidents, from crazy weather to beautiful weather. You know, just turn, constantly a kind of turning is how I think of the volta in an American sonnet. Yeah. Let's hear one of them. You have American sonnet for my grandfather's love child. Would you read that? Sure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, maybe this is the first time I've also tried to do some, some overlapping with forms. Wow. And so I'm really trying to get away from these sonnets. And so... Even here, you didn't I'm, succeed. I <laughs> there's, there's a few of them. <laughs> so you know, I'm turning to different ideas. So this one's probably more personal. If I think that the American sonnets in the collection were directly coming out yeah. of you know political context. Okay. So this one's called "Yes, American Sonnet for My Grandfather's Love Child." You take a tree, where all the blackbirds are sleeping, except for the one clapping its wings. That's the kind of woman who raised me. My mother changed her name to daughter, then to sister, then back to mother again. Three times she parked outside her wretched father's house, undertaking a melancholy kind of karaoke. She can't sing, really. She's ashamed of her teeth. But she pretended an MC was saying, give her a hand when she finished. I wasn't there, but I bet she jangled her car keys as if she was offering a small girl a ride to the beach to the ocean side, to the water a girl becomes to survive, and the soft applause washing ashore when she retreats. To love her, I had to love the night curling up around me. I woke up surprised whether she was coming or going. So the title again, American Sonnet for My Grandfather's Love Child. Tell us what's going on here. If I could say anything about these poems, you know, I recently went home. I get home maybe once or twice a year. Where's home? Uh, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I just packed one or two books to give to the one or two friends in the South who know that I write. So as soon as I sat down with my bags and opened them, these books fell out. And my mother grabbed the poems and my dad grabbed the other book and I just started sweating. Yeah. And I thought about this poem. And the line that I most was concerned about was she's ashamed of her teeth. So I will say, yes, I, this is something like a confessional poem. It's something like reconciling what it meant to think of my mother as a young woman who had me when she was 16, but also saying I'm not necessarily interested in talking to her about it, you know. So I'm like, oh, y'all give me these books back. Just give me these books back, which they did, <laughs> and we didn't mention it again. I said, I'll mail them to you when I get home. Has she read this poem then? Oh, no, no, they don't read any of it. That's what I'm saying to you. I, I, they may hear this on NPR, and then I'll have to... Then you're going to have some, to, explanation. some explaining to do. Yeah, that's what I thought when you asked me that poem. <laughs> I mean, there is a lovely image in here of your mother as a the clapping blackbird. Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? Well, you know, in the previous sonnets, there's a poem in there talking about my mother as a kind of bird 
free within this cage and my father as this kind of bull, very stoic inside of a stall. And I do, I knew I think of them in the, as that way. I did grow up in the South and bulls and horses and cows and any kind of thing you could think about, you know, uh, in terms of the, the natural environment sometimes will show up in the poems. And it, it just so happens I do think of my mother as a kind of blackbird image. The poet Terrence Hayes, his new collection is called So to Speak. Thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations, including associations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to WBUR this evening. Red Sox will wrap up a two-game series with the Atlanta Braves tonight at Fenway. Sox took last night's game. Brian Bayo gets the start for Boston. Spencer Strider takes the hill for the Braves. First pitch is at 710. 88 degrees still in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston. Now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views, featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A tornado that tore through a Pfizer factory in North Carolina last week could result in increased shortages of drugs, including Adderall and penicillin. There's clearly going to be a gap, and I think we will see some some worsening shortages, but it's not devastating. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, July 26th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up also as America is being scorched by the sun. We ask why heat waves don't have the same legitimacy or federal funding as other extreme weather events. And ahead on Marketplace, local indicators can say a lot about the conditions of the local economy. I see what I see, and clearly there are more people in the office. People are on the streets, trains are crowded. What small business owners look for to shape their decisions about the economy. Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell abruptly stopped speaking at a press conference at the Capitol today. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on questions about the top Senate Republicans' health. Senator McConnell began his weekly press conference outlining his party's priorities, but then he stopped talking and appeared to freeze for about 30 seconds. Senator John Barrasso, who was a medical doctor, stepped in and guided his colleague away from the lectern and away from the Capitol press corps to talk to him. After returning several minutes later, McConnell told reporters he was, quote, fine and was able to do his job. The Kentucky Republican, who was 81, fell in March and suffered a concussion. He walks with a limp after battling polio as a child. McConnell's aides said they would provide an update, but have not released any details on his condition yet. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. Ocean temperatures off Florida's coast are hitting the triple digits as the state continues to bake under a persistent heat wave. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, experts say the warm water poses a risk to marine life. A sensor near Everglades National Park on Monday recorded an ocean temperature of 101 degrees. Data show it's part of a trend of higher than normal water temperatures across the Florida Bay in recent weeks. Experts say warmer ocean temperatures driven by climate change can harm marine life, including coral that sustained bleaching and other damage recently. Florida has been experiencing a punishing heat wave throughout July, with the National Weather Service issuing heat warnings or advisories for the Miami area for more than three weeks in a row. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. The Department of Transportation wants bathrooms on airplanes to be more accessible. So, on the 33rd anniversary of the American with Disabilities Act, the DOT announced a new rule requiring airlines to make laboratories on new single aisle aircraft large enough to permit a passenger with a disability and an attendant. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates again by another quarter point. As NPR's David Gurra reports, that hike was in line with what Wall Street expected. Interest rates have not been this high in more than two decades. The Fed Reserve has been hiking them at an aggressive pace. The Fed is trying to get high inflation under control by slowing down the U.S. economy, and that's a tricky undertaking. Inflation is still higher than the Fed's target of 2 percent, but prices are rising at a much slower rate than they were a year ago. At their last meeting in June, policymakers held interest rates steady after a string of increases, 10 in total. They wanted to pause to gauge the effects of those hikes on the economy. Today's hike shows they're of the belief they need to do more. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And Wall Street was a mixed territory. Dow up 82, Nasdaq down 17. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Things are about to heat up in the Boston area and much of the rest of the state. Temperatures are still in the upper 80s right now. And WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noy says they're expected to get hotter. Heat advisories go into effect tomorrow and last through Friday with highs in the mid-90s and intense humidity. The heat index value will hover right around 100 degrees both afternoons. Tomorrow, we'll also need to keep an eye to the sky. Scattered thunderstorms are expected during the afternoon and evening especially. Some could become severe with damaging wind gusts and localized flooding the primary threats. No storms Friday, but another round is expected Saturday with highs around 90 before relief arrives on Sunday. will be much less humid and not nearly is hot with a high near 80. 
Boston and several other communities have already declared heat emergencies starting tomorrow, and they will open cooling centers to the public. Eversor says it's prepared for a potential heat wave settling in. Eversource's bill stacks as the utility gets ready year-round to deal with public safety and power restoration issues that come with prolonged hot weather. He says residents can help reduce pressure on the region's electric grid, use major appliances early in the morning or later in the evening instead of during peak hours. And that's what our concern is, people coming home from work from 4 to 7, and that's when we see a spike in usage from ACs going on, people cooking, electronics going on, etc. Stack suggests you use your microwave rather than stove or oven, which can heat up the kitchen. He also says close your curtains and pull down the shades to keep out the sun and the heat. Two dozen small businesses in Boston will set up shop in empty storefronts in the city. It's part of a new grant program to revitalize business districts hit hard during the pandemic. Mayor Michelle Wu announced the awardees today and said they come from all different sectors and industries. From sustainable, gender-neutral clothing, multilingual childcare, community-owned markets and grocery stores, to art and dance studios, gyms, a queer bar, a multimedia outlet focused on Boston's black community, these businesses are Boston. The city says more than half the businesses are owned and operated by women and people of color. The program would be funded by nearly $3 million from the COVID-era American Rescue Plan. The MBTA says the B branch of the Green Line should reopen by Saturday morning as planned. The T is replacing about a half mile of track on the BU campus and in Alston. The agency says 90 percent of the work is done. Shuttle buses have replaced trains along the entire line since it shut down last week. And the city of Lynn is looking for artists to turn bus shelters into works of art. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the deadline for proposals is right around the corner. The Art on the Move initiative is a multi-organizational effort to incorporate art into commuters' daily lives. City of Lynn arts and culture planner Lucretia Thompson says bus shelters are a great tool for visually engaging with people. They're just perfect canvases because they're already there. People are using them. Why not make them more interesting? Lynn's Public Art Commission will lead a panel to select seven artists to participate in the program. The deadline for proposals is this Friday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. 87 degrees in the Boston area. The time is 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Extreme heat killed more people in the U.S. last year than hurricanes, floods, lightning, or tornadoes. It's by far the deadliest weather-related disaster in this country, yet the human impact is harder to see. No toppled trees or flooded homes, and the federal government treats heat waves differently than other types of disasters. Well, if you think about it, heat has no owner. There's no heat agency. It's everybody and nobody's problem. And I think that needs to change. That is Kathy Bothman McLeod talking to All Things Considered back in 2021. She's a director of the Arsht Rock Resilience Center, a nonprofit focused on climate adaptation. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Kathy, just yesterday on the show, I spoke with the mayor of Phoenix, and she was telling me that she and other officials in the state of Arizona are working to get heat designated as an eligible federal disaster. So, I want to ask you, how much has changed since we talked to you two years ago in how the federal government responds to these events? 
Well, lots of good things and also an acceleration of the effects of heat that exceeds our own perception of how hot it is. Um, NOAA has just put out a $5 million grant opportunity and FEMA has the you know, building resilient infrastructure uh, communities. That is a $2.3 billion offering for local and state governments, um, big multi-agency task force across the the federal government. Um, but at the same time, we see deaths and illness and the increase of the risk and the impact is happening so quickly, our own perception of it can't keep up. And so there's some good news and some bad news. I understand that you are on FEMA's National Advisory Council. What can you tell us about how FEMA is moving to respond to extreme heat, much as we see the agency respond to other disasters? I can't really respond um, as a member of the National Advisory Council, and so um, I won't make any comments on that. But I will say that the understanding of the need to get in front of these disasters for communities, places like Miami-Dade County, where they are implementing worker protection rules at the local level, uh, trying to pass protections for people who are least responsible for the heat but the most susceptible to it, that has become uh, top of the agenda of local and state leaders across the country. Heat deaths are really hard to count because only some of those have heat illness specified on a death certificate. So in your view, do we have an accurate picture today of how deadly these heat waves really are? We do not absolutely do not. And the underlying conditions that lots of Americans and people around the world have are exacerbated by heat. And so when you go into the hospital, there is not a box to check on the intake that says, is this a heat-related injury? And if that's happening, that's great, but it is uh, few and far between. It sounds like you're saying that some of the solutions here could be pretty easy, but I'm curious what the effect would be. What would more accurate counting of health issues or deaths that occur due to heat do when it comes to improving the government response? I think it would create more urgency to have the sense, you know, in the summer of 2021, 1,200 people died in two days uh, across the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. I mean, that's a mass casualty event. And again, you fly over and there's nothing to see, you know, from one day, you know, to the third day. And we are still having the same conversation. So if we had those huge numbers that showed us how many people really are getting sick, I, we, I think we'd have the private sector getting involved, understanding how much it was costing them, the healthcare companies, governments enacting lots of evidence-based interventions that we know work and save money. And so some very strong cost-saving and health protection measures could come as a result of having real data that tells us how many people are dying from heat. Two years ago, when you spoke to my colleagues on the show, you told us that heat waves really, ne they need to be named in order to be taken as seriously as other extreme weather events. Has there been any progress on that front since then? Yes, there has been progress. Um, you know, we're also equal or, or even more so advocates for health-based categorization systems so that when you have um, just the way we do hurricanes, they're a category one or a two mm -hmm. or a three, we think and are showing that a health-based categorization system is a great way to convey how 
deadly the risk is at any certain time in a given community. On top of that, we attach a naming convention with our partners in Seville, Spain. And we have in a um, international consortium, we've named the third official heat wave um, this summer. And so we named Zoe last summer and have conducted a, an early evaluation to see, did people remember the name Zoe? And if so, did you change your behavior? Did you protect yourself and take some actions? Did you call your family? And further, did you trust the government's advice on what to do? And the very early returns from the evaluation show that the answer is yes, that people who remembered Zoe's name did act and do more, share with their uh, friends and family, and trusted the government's advice. What immediate things should governments be doing now as much of the country is grappling with extreme heat to protect people who live in their cities and towns? The biggest thing that we need is the awareness built to the level of this risk. The, the risk is bigger than we think it is. And so governments need to focus on public awareness. Um, it's not rocket science, but it's got to be really focused communication about what the risk is and what people should be doing and how to recognize signs and then how to protect yourself. And nobody has to die from heat. This is one of the most positive aspects of climate action. No one has to die from this. With the right information and a place to go, nobody has to die. That was Kathy Boffman McLeod. She's the director of the Arshtrock Resilience Center and also serves on FEMA's National Advisory Council. Kathy, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, to a different extreme weather event, tornadoes, and specifically the tornado that ripped through a critical Pfizer factory in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina last week. It could mean more drug shortages in a year that has already seen scarcity of Adderall and amoxicillin and chemotherapy drugs and more. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin has obtained records that show what was being made at this Pfizer facility and who might be affected by the damage. Hey, Sydney. Hello. Hi. So what was being made at this Pfizer facility? Tell me more. Yeah, sure. So I have to say that it's not easy information to figure out. Companies are reluctant to disclose exactly what they make where. The information is often blacked out on FDA inspection records, for example. But NPR was able to use records from the National Institutes of Health to compile a list of dozens of drugs that are made there. And they include a lot of painkillers and anesthetics that are used in hospitals and given intravenously. And there are also a lot of drugs like um, naloxone, which is used to reverse opioid overdose and vitamin K, which is used to prevent bleeding in newborns. According to Pfizer, this site makes about 8% of all sterile injectables used in hospitals across the U.S. Okay, so all kinds of things being made there. When a factory site like that goes down, it would have very serious implications, I imagine. Right, and hospitals panicked. I spoke with Aaron Fox, a pharmacy director for the University of Utah Health Hospitals. Every hospital buyer across the country, the second they heard about that tornado, everyone is just like, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> they went overboard, and it resulted in some attempted hoarding. But Pfizer shut that down fairly quickly by working with wholesalers to limit what hospitals could buy to no more than 100% of their usual orders. Pfizer declined my request for an interview, but Fox praised the company for its handling of the situation. So Pfizer's not talking to you. Have they said anything at all about the situation? 
So they sent a letter to healthcare providers explaining that only the warehouse areas were damaged. Production areas seem to be okay. Pfizer also sent a list of 65 products that it thinks might have disruptions based on existing inventory and market share. A lot of them were already in shortage, which is good news and bad news. The bad news is those shortages will continue for things like certain formulations of lidocaine, which is a local anesthetic. But the good news is hospitals already know how to cope. Here's Erin Fox again. She's also a national expert on drug shortages. There had to be this tornado. It seems like this is probably one of the best case scenarios where, you know, manufacturing lines aren't aren't impacted and it was an area of the facility that can be fairly quickly um, rebuilt. And so it's not a it's not a time to panic. She expects the ripple effects of this to last a few months rather than a few years. Are there takeaways, Sydney, lessons to be learned from this? There are, and they relate to the drug shortages that happened a few years ago when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Health economist Rena Conti at Boston University told me this tornado at Pfizer is just another reminder that pharmaceutical factories are vulnerable to climate change. A lot of drug manufacturing requires access to water, which puts the factories in harm's way in places like Puerto Rico or the Gulf states. Redundancy is also important in the drug supply chain, so that when something strikes a factory, a tornado, a hurricane, mold, a bad inspection, whatever, it's not the end of the world. Still, there are a few products that are only made by Pfizer and only at that one facility, but they have been in such short supply for so long that doctors have learned to use alternatives anyway. In many ways, we're lucky the situation wasn't worse. NPR's Sydney Lupkin, thanks for bringing us up to speed on the situation. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for listening to us this evening. Some top players are missing from the Women's World Cup this year due to ACL injuries. Marketplace will look at the investment gap in ACL injury prevention for women and men in sports. Marketplace starts in about 10 minutes. For the Dow, 13 straight days of gains. The index finished up nearly a quarter of a percent today. That's the longest winning streak since 1987. S&P lost a tiny fraction. The Nasdaq fell about a tenth of a percent. The University of Massachusetts Lowell is offering some employees buyout plans. This comes after the U Lowell Chancellor sent out a video last week saying the school is embarking on structural and reorganization efforts to deal with ongoing financial and demographic pressures. Chancellor Julie Chan says the buyouts range from $5,000 to $30,000 depending on employees' length of service. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars.
Still in the mid-80s right now, overnight tonight, partly cloudy and dry, down about 70 degrees. Tomorrow, some sunshine, also the chance of some random thunderstorms in the afternoon. Could have more stormy summer weather for part of Saturday than calm and cooler on Sunday. Highs on Friday and Saturday in the low to mid-90s. Should have highs in the upper 70s on Sunday. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, signed last year, included a whopping $369 billion earmarked for combating climate change. A big chunk of that money went to boosting the electric vehicle battery industry here in the U.S. But what the Biden administration did not expect was a backlash from allies. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam The Inflation Reduction Act, known simply as the IRA, was hailed by the Biden administration as a massive climate win for the U.S. A lot of the U.S. energy leaders, whether it's government or private sector, expected this to be a celebration. That's Olga Hakova with the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center. She says the IRA is supposed to help the clean energy transition and challenge China's lead in electric vehicle batteries. But Hakava says the Biden administration was surprised by how it was received in Europe. When it first was rolled out, uh, there was this tremendous pushback and worry that it is a direct competition to Europe's clean energy economy and competitiveness. That's because the IRA offers big tax breaks for EV car and battery manufacturers if they're assembled in North America using materials domestically sourced or from countries which the U.S. has a free trade agreement. Europe, the U.K. and Japan are not on that list. Ebba Bush, Sweden's Minister for Energy, Business and Industry, says the IRA was creating a subsidy battle. I would say that a lot of Europeans and Swedes, including, uh, took offense of of the Inflation Reduction Act and saw it as uh, a high risk and and were wondering, is this driving a wedge in between uh, the U.S. and the EU? One fear is the IRA's tax breaks would lure away investments that would have gone overseas. Colin Hendricks with the Peterson Institute for International Economics says many Asian companies like Toyota and Hyundai are delaying projects in Europe because of the IRA subsidies. These are all Japanese or Korean firms that are investing in the United States to build EV batteries uh, and uh, create jobs for, for American workers. But it's not like the politicians in Korea or Japan or the European Union for that matter wouldn't on margin prefer that those jobs were back home. The Biden administration denies it's creating a subsidy race. Jose Fernandez, the Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment, says the Inflation Reduction Act will help U.S. and its allies secure new supply chains of critical minerals, such as magnesium and cobalt, that are used in lithium-ion batteries. We will need, for example, 42 times the amount of lithium that we use today and then 25 times the amount of graphite. Fernandez says the U.S. can't do that without its partners, and it's taking steps to address their concerns. From day one, we said, we will sit down with you, we will talk things through. This is not, and this is important, this is not a zero-sum game. The U.S. is partnering with more than a dozen allies to secure minerals. An agreement with Japan would take advantage of the IRA tax breaks, and the U.S. is working on a similar pact with the EU. 
Swedish Minister Bush says there's less tension now between allies over the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that we managed to calm that. We see the positive with really the U.S. and the Biden administration being back on the global arena for fighting climate change, and it will increase the possibility of trade uh, between us. The EU is looking at its own legislation to secure supplies of critical minerals. There are also calls for broader subsidies by member nations, all reminiscent of the IRA. Jackie Northam, NPR News. To Georgia now and new developments in one of the many cases related to the 2020 election. One-time Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is no longer contesting he made false statements about two Georgia election workers. This change comes in a filing in a defamation suit brought against the former New York mayor by the two election workers. It's one of several cases coming to a head this summer involving Giuliani, the former president, and his allies. WABE Sam Greenglass joins me from Atlanta to talk about all of this. Hi, Sam. Hey, Juana. So, Sam, we'll get back to the latest developments in just a minute. But first, remind me who these two election workers are and what Giuliani was saying about them. Juana, let's go back to December 2020. Trump and his allies were ramping up their campaign to delegitimize the election result. Giuliani, at the time, was one of Trump's lawyers who was taking a leading role in this. And he spread this video supposedly showing Fulton County election workers pulling a suitcase of ballots from under a table in Atlanta. How can they say there's no fraud? Look at that woman. Look at her taking those ballots out. Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room hiding around. They look like they're passing out dope. Investigators at the time found this claim to be false, but Giuliani and Trump continued to amplify it anyway. And I take it, Sam, the people in that video are the two election workers who are now suing Giuliani. Yep, mother-daughter election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. They both testified for the January 6th congressional probe last summer. Do you know how it feels to have the president of the United States to target you? But he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a mother, a proud American citizen who stand up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. That is Freeman, who had to flee her home for safety. Moss said she received threats so intense she had to quit her job. Telling me that I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. A lawyer for Moss and Freeman said today that Giuliani's statement affirms that the pair honorably performed their civic duties in the 2020 presidential election. And Sam, I mean, there's a good deal of legalese in these filings, so I'm hoping you can just cut through some of that for us. How big of a deal is this really? Well, let's be clear. Giuliani is not saying he knew the statements were false at the time or even expressly saying he believes that they're false now. So while this filing may undercut some of the you know, persistent conspiracy theories about 2020, he's also still saying his speech is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, a Giuliani spokesman told me this filing is just designed to get to the legal issues of the case. Juana, that could allow Giuliani to avoid producing some evidence a judge says he withheld, like a text where a Trump advisor asked for examples of election fraud that, quote, doesn't necessarily have to be proven. And I mean, this is not even the only legal jeopardy that Rudy Giuliani is in right now, correct? 
Well, we know Giuliani was told last year that he was a target of Fulton County's criminal investigation into efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn Georgia's election result. We also know that he met with Department of Justice Special Counsel Jack Smith's office, who's investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Giuliani says he didn't do anything illegal. Still, criminal charges are expected in both cases soon, though we don't know exactly who will be on those indictments. That's Sam Greenglass of WABE in Atlanta. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Juana. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's the Red Sox and Braves again at Fenway Park tonight for game two of two. Brian Bayo throws the first pitch at 710 tonight. Should be a hot one tonight. It's still in the upper 80s right now. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy temperatures in the low 70s. And then for tomorrow, creeping to the low to mid 90s could feel more like 100, although there should be a gusty wind tomorrow, a slight chance of afternoon showers. There's a heat advisory in effect from 11 tomorrow morning until Friday night, and also a flash flood watch in effect for tomorrow as well. And then for Saturday, look for a few thunderstorms should be in the low to mid 90s. And then Sunday, backing off to about the 70s, should be a nice and sunny day. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com.